So let's jump in. Psalm 119. We are going to start in verse 73 and read through verse 80. And I know you haven't been keeping track, but over the past few years, we have preached nine sermons out of Psalm 119. This is our 10th sermon. Eight verses in each stanza. This is our 10th stanza. And as Jason explained last week, each of the 22 stanzas starts out, each verse in each stanza starts out with the same Hebrew letter. And this 10th stanza begins with the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's, it's similar to what is more commonly known as the iota of the Greek alphabet. Really, really tiny letter. This gives us a little hint into what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying in his word that everything in here is going to be accomplished. And that includes the eight verses that we're about to read right now. And as we go through this, we're going to see an interesting progression by the psalmist. He begins out with this grand, majestic vision of God. It towers above the remaining seven verses and provides a sure, firm foundation for everything that follows. In it, we read truths about God that take us back to the very beginning of creation. And then, after establishing that grand majestic view, it leads into the implications of that grand majestic truth. Truth that meets the soul-deep cries that are born of affliction. Truth that speaks of the soul-satisfying experiences that are found only in God-centered fellowship. And truth that anchors our contentment and our satisfaction in God. So in a concise yet comprehensive way, this stanza will answer life-defining questions that we all should have. Life-defining questions that rise above the superficial matters that so often and too often occupy our waking hours. My rights, my status, my image, what I want, what I feel, what I wish I could feel. The most important questions in life will never be answered with earthly answers. Spiritual questions demand spiritual answers. Where do we come from? What's my purpose in life and what happens when I die? You see, if we get the answers to these big questions right, every other question in our life falls into its proper place. The fog clears, the ice melts. Problems that once paralyzed us are manageable, even though they remain unresolved. Relational strife no longer cripples us. Questions surrounding personal identity and our life purpose no longer dissolve into idolatry or fear or boredom. And health trials. This is real for many people. Health trials, though real and often chronically painful, become manageable because we are aware of a greater need, which we just acknowledged. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, beginning in verse 73 through verse 80. You'll see at the top above 73 in your Bible, it probably says Y-O-D-H. That's the letter we're doing today, Yod. Your hands have made and fashioned me. 
Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Lord, thank you for the promises that you have secured for us in Christ that are revealed to us in your word. When we are in your word, we hear from you. And so I pray now your spirit would inhabit this place. You would, you would empower your words, Lord, to have its intended effect upon us this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My friend Corey has a really unique gift of pottery make some beautiful pieces. And he told me a while ago about a professor under whom he studied at Penn State. The professor is world-renowned and seems to have been born to be able to throw clay on a, pot, on, a, on a wheel and out, after he works on it, comes these beautiful pieces of pottery. However, this man is more than a potter. I would call him a philosopher potter. I was listening to one of his videos, and in it, he talks about meaningful cups, a phrase I've never heard before. He makes meaningful cups. You see, early on, he found that people loved his cups and they were buying and they were sticking them in cabinet cases behind glass to be admired and to be appreciated. But that's not why he made the cup. As a potter, he had specific purposes and intended uses for each of his cups. In one of his videos, he holds up in his hands two objects. In one is this misshapen, dry clump of clay. And in the other is this magnificent, glazed, beautifully decorated coffee cup. When he looked at this clump of clay, he had envisioned the end product, this beautiful coffee cup. This philosopher potter, when he looks at that clay, knows what each end product is going to look like, even when it is a dry piece of clay. God has a purpose for our lives, too. And my hope this morning is that God's Spirit is going to help us come alive to the truth that since we're made by God, we find our life's purpose in God. You see, our greatest mistake in life is to substitute something other than God and make no mistake about it, anything other than God is less than God. Our biggest mistake is to substitute something other than God as the source of our identity. But our second biggest mistake is this, to substitute our vision for our life's purpose for God's vision. If we make either one of these mistakes, we miss everything. So let's pray as we're in God's word, to learn the lessons because we're made by God, we find our life's purpose in him. And the great news is he hasn't hidden himself. When we read God's word, we're meeting with God. If we have his word, we have him. God's word 
speaks this about the purpose in our life. Dave, your life's purpose is to be satisfied in me. Substitute your name there. The greatest purpose we can have in life is to find our satisfaction in God. Now, when we first hear that word satisfaction, we kind of think, that's satisfactory. That old do. You know, if nothing else is available, I'll take it. But that's not how Scripture uses the word satisfaction. Read your Bibles. It's a beautiful word. Let me just give you two examples that elevate our understanding of what satisfaction means. Moses prayed this in Psalm 90. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Sound familiar? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may, be, we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. New Testament, Jesus, the greater Moses, says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Aspiring to be satisfied in God is not second best. There's nothing above being satisfied in God. And so what though is the reason that God and nothing else or no one else is the source of our satisfaction? Well, that's where the psalmist starts out in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Read this and we're catapulted back to Genesis 2, aren't we? And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, unlike the potter who has to use clay or dirt to make clay, God created the dust out of his mouth. And when he did that with man, he said, this is very good. We stand alone in creation as those he chose to make like himself. And that itself dictates that our greatest satisfaction is found in our creator. He made us. So when we get bogged down in the details, the disappointments of life, which are real, doesn't our vision tend to shrink? Our world becomes very small? That's not where the psalmist starts out. He's been made and is being fashioned by God and not some distant, impersonal God who created us and then left us to go off on our own. God made us with his hands. If you've ever watched a potter fashioning clay, it is really an intimate scene. It really is. He never takes his hands off the spinning pot, only to get some water to continue to mold and fashion it. As, he, as the clay spins, he ever so gently places his hands around the clay, effortlessly applies pressure in just the right place to get just the right shape. And even when he uses a, an instrument, a blunt instrument, to carve away excess clay, he does it ever so gently just like a mother touching her baby's cheek. That is the God who made and fashioned us. Been around a baby that cries a lot. Dads have no help at all at those times. Funny faces, goofy sounds don't help. That baby is only satisfied when that mom goes over and draws the baby close to her. The baby senses that she owes her existence and her survival 
to her mom. And so she turns to mom as what? The source of her satisfaction. That's how we think about God. And how do we see this satisfaction in God lived out by the psalmist? Well, I want to suggest three evidences of this, that this man is satisfied in God. He depends on God, he points others to God, and he trusts in God. Depends, points, and trusts. The first evidence of his satisfaction in God is the way he prays. Expresses dependence. Give me understanding. Let your steadfast love, let your mercy, let the insolent, let those who fear you, may my heart be blameless. Give let may those are words used by a man that knows what he needs and where he's going to get it he's expressing his absolute dependence on god words of supplication that are rooted in what he declared back in verse 73 right the lord made him and is fashioning him where else is he going to go for what he needs he turns to the lord Let's look at a couple of these needs. There's many here, but let's just look at two. Verse 73. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. He wants desperately to know God's commandments. And so who does he go to? The one who gave them. Let the author interpret the commandments. Without the help of God's spirit, we really cannot understand the meaning and the promises that they hold for us personally. Even the disciples had to ask Jesus to explain the parables to him. So before we jump into our Bibles, let's slow down, press the pause button, and ask God's Spirit to open our eyes. What do you want me to see? Show me, God, what this passage says about you and Christ. Show me what it says about me. Show me how I'm to respond to your truths. I need you to remove my biases and my preferences and what I want the Word to say. I want to know what you think about it. I need you to be the filter through which I take in your truths. Now, as, as we look at this, we should also understand the type of learning that he's talking about. It's not just facts. It's not just memorizing the Bible. Those are good, but they're, they're necessary but insufficient. Learning implies a depth of understanding deep down that changes our desires, our wants, and reflects itself in our lives. The choices we make, the words we use, the things we do give evidence that we have learned or we have not learned from God's Word. Another example of this man's dependence on God. Let your steadfast love, verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Logically, if he's seeking comfort, this man is suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to be a martyr. Even Jesus cried out in the garden, Father, if it's your will, deliver me from this cup. Let me not go to the cross. Now, we don't know the specific nature of the psalmist's suffering, but in many ways that is so, so helpful because what it does, it allows us to insert ourselves into this psalm. What is your suffering? The same comfort that this man asked for, you can ask for for your specific unique suffering because we need to be comforted and notice how he asked to be comforted back in communion kenny mentioned it it's with the steadfast love of god 
That doesn't mean that at some point he didn't ask to be healed or fed or reconciled. He did, and we should as well, ask for our our material human needs to be met. But he knew what he needed most. What he knew would bring lasting satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment, peace, was the steadfast love of God. When David was running and hiding in the wilderness from his enemies, he said in Psalm 63 that God's steadfast love was what better than life. We should be asking for something that's better than life, right? So when you're suffering, do you ask God to help you know his steadfast love? Deep down, you have a chronic physical condition. Are you experiencing the pain of a fractured relationship? Has a hope been denied or a, or a dream deferred? You got an unexpected news that you, you, is shaking you and you don't know what to do with it? Do you have a recurring temptation that is weighing on your conscience? When suffering arrives, where do you go? Let's be like this man and ask for the steadfast love of God to comfort us. Now, before we get to the second evidence, I want to point out this. Did you notice the source of this man's affliction? It's back up in verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We should all stop right there. He's saying that the Lord, he knows that the Lord has afflicted him. What do we do as Christians with a statement like that? God has afflicted him, and now he's going to God for comfort. The hand that, the mouth that bit him is now going, he's going to him to feed him. This man, though, knew something that we need to remember. He needs to, he, he accurately interprets his suffering in light of verse 73. God made him and fashioned him. And therefore, everything he's experienced in his life is unfolding under the care and the watch of God, including his suffering. God hasn't abandoned him. God's not out to get him. God loves him. He understands so well what the writer of Hebrews did hundreds of years later, that all suffering is carefully measured out in just the right proportion out of God's love. Like a father who disciplines his child because he loves him, the Lord brings, this is hard to say, but it needs to be said, the Lord brings suffering into our lives because he loves us. If you're suffering right now, I hope you can feel it. I hope you go to God's word and and sense his love for you. If you're not suffering, drill this truth that's in God's word deep down into you because you're going to need it when suffering arrives. God is always good. He's like the potter. His hands are always shaping and pressing us into the meaningful cup that he has envisioned for us. And even when he cuts with a knife or places us gently in the kiln, it's because he knows without those processes we will never be the meaningful cup that he has envisioned for us. And when, in his time, he pulls us out of the kiln, we'll look in the mirror and marvel at what God has done, and we will be satisfied in him. Second evidence that this man finds his satisfaction in God is that he points others to God. 
Look at verses 74 and 79, very similar verses. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Then 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Those who fear God are those who follow Jesus. Our satisfaction in God should show itself in our experiences, our regular experiences with other followers of Jesus. You see, these relationships exist primarily because of our common love for God and all that he's done for us in Christ. Our bond in Christ is greater than common interests and like-mindedness. 21 years ago, I was in a prison in Bolivia. I wasn't arrested, though. It's not why I was there. I was invited by a pastor to, to, to help him minister to some of the prisoners. Middle-aged white man from southern Delaware in this windowless room with dozens of poor men in a third-world country. They spoke no English and had many years to serve on their sentence. A casual observer would look at us and say we had nothing in common. But I tell you, and I remember the feeling to this day, there was a genuine joy and lightness in my heart when I was with those men in that dark room. They knew Jesus, and it was so evident. There was joy in their words and on their faces. It is undeniable that they had met Christ. They had found their satisfaction, not in their environment, but in Jesus. And when I saw their faith, when I listened to them give the reason for the hope that they had, I was filled with courage. As they gave testimony to all that God had done in their lives, I found myself being the one that was ministered to. And guess what? My love for God grew in that prison. I remember saying to the pastor who invited me on the way out, I have more in common and felt more joy in that moment than I often do with my neighbors in my backyard. Why? Because of the love that we have for Christ. So if that can happen in Bolivia with strangers, shouldn't that be our experience here as well? Do you look forward to being with other believers? Do you find joy in their company? If so, way to go. That's God's gift to us. What, though, is the source, the, the foundation of your joy? Common interests, vacations together, similar opinions, watching football, all good stuff, all gifts from a God who loves us. We should enjoy them. But they must not, they cannot be our foundation. Fellowship that is founded on something, anything other than the word of God, and remember, anything other than God is less than God. Fellowship that's founded on something other than God will prove shaky when earthquakes come, and they will come. When we find ourselves in times of trouble, we need something more than common interests. When we're given a serious diagnosis by the doctor, we need a friend who can come over and fill us with courage. When we're experiencing the heartache of a wandering child, we need a friend to remind us there is hope. When we're anxious because of work or where our culture is headed, we need a friend who can tell us, you can have peace. In those times of trouble, we don't need Hallmark cards, pats on the back, somebody telling us to be confident that it'll be okay. I'm thinking of you. We need a friend 
We need a friend who has been in the word of God and is ready and prepared and willing and eager to use that word to fill us with courage, remind us that there's hope, and to point us to the one that give us, gives us a peace that passes understanding. Do you have that friend? Are you that friend? Let's be that for one another, Brandywine Grace. Let's be that person that causes others to rejoice when they're with us. And not just because they like having a good time, but because we can help remind them and they can help remind us that our greatest satisfaction is in God. If we find our greatest satisfaction in God, we'll be able to remind others of the same thing. The Christian life is meant to be a shared life. It's kind of like Christian and faithful if you've ever um, read Pilgrim's Progress. We will help one another on this journey from the city of destruction out of the city of destruction. We'll walk through the slow of despond. We'll, we'll get through Vanity Fair, the hill of difficulty, Doubting Castle, the shadow of death are all real trials for every one of us. But armed with the word of God to help one another, we will, by the grace of God, together reach the celestial city. And there, our satisfaction in God is going to reach its zenith. So there you have it. Two evidences of, of why this man finds his satisfaction in God. Third evidence. Instead, he trusts in God. Now, we've already seen this in many ways. He's a man who trusts God by, by knowing that God made him, and he goes to him in his word. But I want to point out here, in verse 78, a unique situation that requires a unique trust in God. And it's that time when we're unjustly accused and attacked. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. Unless you live on an island by yourself, you're going to be accused at some point in your life. That's reality in this world, guys. How are we, as followers of Jesus, who put our hope in him to respond at those times? We are called to resist all forms of injustice and unrighteousness. But even our best efforts cannot eradicate injustice. If we've done all I can, what do we do then? Do we give up? Do we return injustice for injustice? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type of thing? King David who wrote much of the Psalms, was familiar with injustice. Just read Psalm 37. He had a different perspective on how to respond to injustice. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. David responded to injustice the way this man in Psalm 119 did. Who knows? They may be the same men. Some theologians think they are. But our psalmist wrote, as for me, what's he going to do when he faces injustice? I will meditate on your precepts. When others hurl falsehoods our way, what are we to do? Get in a war of words? If you've tried that, you know that leads nowhere. Good. Humility is our best path forward. That's especially true because often when we think someone is accusing us or attacking us, 
that instance is nothing more than a magnified misunderstanding or difference of opinion. So once we've given it our best, we stand for justice, we turn our attention to our hope in God, the ultimate arbiter of justice. He's the strong tower we run to. We meditate on his truths day and night, not the accusations, and there we find our satisfaction. So there's three evidences how this man has found satisfaction in God, his, pur- his life's purpose. He depends on God. He points others to God, and he trusts in God. And as we've done this, we've answered two of those existential questions that I presented at the beginning. Where do we come from, and what's our life's purpose? What about the third question? What happens when I die? Well, the psalmist hasn't left us on our own. Verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. This man was asking God to do the impossible. He was asking God who made him to give him a blameless, perfect heart, live a perfect life, obeying every one of God's commands every day of his life. He prayed this because he knew that to be in the presence of God when he dies, God would ask him to give an account for his life. And if he had lived a perfect life, guess what? God's going to usher him in. But he knew there was a disconnect there. There's only one way God can look at our hearts as blameless and perfect. That's if we're given a new heart. A heart that's been transformed by grace through faith. A heart that trusts in Jesus' perfect life of obedience Because Jesus came not to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill every iota of the law. If you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins, you will live with him forever. And anyone who lifts up their soul to God and trusts in him will never be put to shame and will find their greatest satisfaction in God, both in this life and in the life to come. So be it. Amen.